Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Back Matter podcast, I'll be talking with David Vandegrift. Based in Utah, David is an attorney with a wide range of experience both in technology and in contract and intellectual property law, including the various types of contracts authors sign with their agents and publishers. In addition to his contract counsel work for authors, David has also engaged throughout his diverse career in high-level litigation and has worked on contracts with some of the world's biggest corporations, including Apple and Disney and Goldman Sachs, amongst many others. Listeners to this podcast may be familiar with David through his popular blog, The Passive Voice, where he writes under the name Passive Guy or PG. On the blog, David writes about issues of interest to people in the publishing and self-publishing industries, as well as other important and just interesting topics in industry news. If you're not already reading it, I highly recommend you check out the blog at thepassivevoice.com and that you follow the related Twitter account at PassiveVoiceBLG. In this interview, we're going to talk about David's career, technology and intellectual property issues, author contracts, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about some of the latest issues of note in the book publishing industry. So thank you, David, for being on the Back Matter podcast. My great pleasure. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin story. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you ended up in the law. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, it's a uh, given my age, it's a long story. And so uh, if I need to speed it up a little bit, just go ahead and give me a sign. But uh, I grew up in Colorado and Minnesota uh, on ranches in Colorado and farms in uh, Minnesota. Uh, went to very tiny schools. Uh, in in Colorado, we were way up in the mountains for a while, and uh, uh, I was never the only student in my grade, but uh, several times there were two students in my grade. Uh, anyway, went to high school in Minnesota. Uh, if you've uh, ever listened to Garrison Keillor, uh, you know exactly what my uh, what my life was like in uh, in high school. Uh, after that. Uh, I went to – well, I'd been to a summer program at Northwestern University between my junior and senior years in high school, and uh, they offered a, an opportunity to speak with the admissions guy, and uh, I took that opportunity, and he asked me a bunch of questions and then told me in in essence uh, that I was a slam dunk if I wanted to come there. And so uh, I said – I thought to myself, well, you know, that's – easier than waiting around for acceptance letters. Uh, and so I applied and uh, they were kind enough to give me a very nice scholarship. And I spent four years there uh, in the uh, uh, School of Speech. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I a couple of times I actually substituted on the campus radio station uh, while I was there. And uh, anyway, graduated, uh, went to work uh, in Chicago after my graduation, uh, first with a, uh, a large financial services company, uh, then with a big advertising agency. And so um, I was uh, selling hot dogs and dog food, uh, not not to the same people, but uh, that uh, I did that for a while. Then I uh, met the woman who would later become my wife, and every male member of her family uh, was and is a lawyer. And uh, so her father sat down and gave me the big pitch on why law school was a great idea. And so I went to law school at Pepperdine University in Malibu, uh, much better in January than Chicago is in terms of, uh, in terms of creature comforts. Uh, graduated there, went to work for uh, her father's law, my wife's father's law firm for a little while. Um, let's just say our personalities did not 
fit together uh, as wonderfully as they, they might have. I could I could handle her father on Sundays for dinner and that sort of thing, but uh, working with him was a different story. So anyway, I went to work for one of the uh, firm's clients as uh, general counsel, and this client basically was uh, – I, I don't hesitate to call him a genius inventor. He he developed a whole lot of things that that provided foundations for mainframe computers. This I told you I was this this is going back a ways, but basically were found in any every mainframe computer. He had a whole bunch of patents and so forth. And he had a new patent and a new or a series of new patents and wanted me to help him. Uh, with the legal aspects of it, and I sort of end up, ended up being the chief operating officer. Um, we got great publicity. Uh, front page of the Washington Post, uh, front page of the Los Angeles Times, uh, went back and and had hearings in Washington, D.C. Uh, my boss testified there and all that. This was in the middle of, of uh, the energy crisis uh, during the Carter years. And so we went – you know, giant publicity, lots of people talking to us and so forth. But uh, anyway, but this boss, um, you know, he he wanted the perfect deal and um, and wanted, you know, wanted all the money in the world uh, and complete control over everything that went on. And so we we had some uh, very good negotiations and we licensed it to a few people. But in terms of the big payoff, uh, it, it never came. Um, so at this point in time, I was kind of tired of Los Angeles. And so uh, I saw it a place as unlike Los Angeles as, po as possible, and uh, that turned out to be a little town in southwest Missouri called Monette. And I went back there, hung out a shingle, uh, and crossed my fingers while waiting to see if people uh, <clears throat> would show up and hire me. And uh, it took them a while, but eventually they started doing it. And so uh, my specialty there was uh, hillbilly law, which is, you know, hogs, dogs, deeds and wills. Uh, but it, it was very retail. Uh, I ended up really enjoying it. Uh, I enjoyed being, you know, connected with real people. I enjoyed some of the stories that uh, that I picked up out of it and so forth. Um and I'd still be there now if it weren't for uh, the fact that I discovered personal computing. And so um, I started out. I had I had learned uh, word processing, uh, a dedicated word processing program while I was in Los Angeles. Uh, got pretty good at it. Used it actually to uh, to print out my resume uh, to go to work for for the firm's one of the firm's clients, like I mentioned. Anyway, so. Uh, I got a word processor, got that all going and everything, and lo and behold, uh, a friend of mine ran the local Radio Shack store, and he was talking to me about uh, the Radio Shack personal computers and so forth. So I uh, got one, had a great time with it, and uh, started using it in my law practice, and I I graduated to every time. Every time there was a more powerful computer that came out, new new chip or something like that, I I switched to that. Um, learned about WordPerfect, which still in my mind is the finest word processing program that ever has ever has existed on the planet, and started to do a variety of different things. Um, 
in my uh, in my practice as far as automating it, basically. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, these things were were items that just made sense to me. Just you know, hey, let's, this is the way you do it. You don't you don't retype the whole uh, um, petition for dissolution of marriage. You just go ahead and set it up. So all you have to do is just replace all the variables, and there you go. And so um, I'm not sure exactly how, but I got a call from a guy who uh, who was looking for a speaker uh, for the Missouri Bar's uh, annual meeting on technology. And as I say, I'm, I to this day I still don't know how he how he got a hold of me. But uh, uh, I was asked to speak and come and speak and and talk about how I use my computer. And so I put together my first uh, presentation for a bunch of lawyers, and it was, uh, you know, how much can you do in an hour? It was an hour-long presentation. How much can you do in an hour in a law office if you know how to use your computers right? And so I did a demo of divorces and wills and everything like that in an hour. It ended up – oh, a bankruptcy too. Uh, And it ended up – I ended up having a bill for like – $2,000 $2,000 for an hour's worth of work, which by hellbilly law standards is extremely, uh, extremely rich. And, um, and so I was fine. And then the guy, and then a guy came up afterwards and said, Hey, I'm, uh, in so many words, a big shot with the American Bar Association. Um, and I'm I'm very interested in the computers, and I've seen all the things that the speakers at the American Bar Association are doing, and nobody's doing what you're doing. So that led to uh, led to speaking at the American Bar Association annual meeting for ten years in a row, uh, speaking all over the country, getting invitations for for presentations all over the country, from New York to Los Angeles, uh, and. Uh, and doing what are called CLEs, continuing legal education programs. I do a whole day uh, showing how to use, you know, computers. Uh, the American Bar Association Journal, monthly monthly journal that goes out to all uh, uh, members, uh, said, "Hey, I'd, we'd like you to write a column for us." And so I, I showed up. My byline specifically called out that I practiced hillbilly law. And so anyway, so I was having a I was having a good time, a lot of fun. Uh, I got the ABA Journal had me fly out to interview Alan Ashton, uh, word perfect. Uh, So I got to know him pretty well and got a became sort of the, you know, a word perfect I don't know. I sort of a word perfect ambassador is what they'd be called now, but it was just I just liked it. And uh, and uh, in these in in those days, uh, Microsoft Word was nowhere near for the things that I did and doing things fast, uh, nowhere near. So anyway, um, at this time, my wife became very ill and uh, we were not able to find good medical care for her. Uh, in, you know, rural Missouri. And so um, um, I got, I got a, uh, an invitation from somebody I knew, from, from somebody I knew at LexisNexis uh, Legal Research Organization, one of the two big ones. Uh, and uh, he said, hey, uh, 
heard you might be looking. Can you come to work for us and basically take over our um, small practice business? In other words, uh, small was 10 and below for them. And uh, I said yes. So I went to work for a technology company. And um, that was, uh, you know, it was one of those things that was fun at first. And, but then I learned another lesson, and that is uh, um, be careful of who owns the company that uh, you're working for. And it turned out that uh, that they were owned by a large, uh, one of the largest, either the first or second largest media company in the world, headquartered in uh, England and uh, Holland. And, you know, those those guys were – you know, they were great at doing some things, but they didn't understand technology at all. But I was able to, you know, push through the first uh, first program of le computerized legal research for small firms, uh, did a lot of a lot more talking and so forth um, at that point in time, but started letting people know that I wouldn't mind uh, going someplace else. I got uh, was contacted by somebody who said, hey, uh, I know the guy who is the head of Ancestry.com. And so, uh, long story short, I came to work for Ancestry, uh, VP of Strategic Partnerships, and then VP of worked, – worked my way into VP of Sales and Marketing. Uh, this was when I was, you know, having interactions with Microsoft, uh, all the big banks uh, in New York. Uh, Apple, let's see, who else? Uh, Sun Microsystems when they were still a big deal uh, and so forth. So a lot of lot of technology relationships going on there in terms of technology we needed and then a, a whole lot of publicity for you know selling uh, genealogical services, which is what Ancestry is all about, was and is all about. And, um, and that was really cool. Um, is this going on too long? No, no, no. All right, all right. I'm I'm noting things that I'll 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 pull on okay. when you're done. But you're weaving a great story here, so just all right. Well, my wife wanted to make sure I took my uh, afternoon medication so I wouldn't talk too long. So uh, she she said that. So if I if I do so uh, anyway, um, ancestry the 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 founders of ancestry did not read the contract that they signed with then the largest venture capital group in California, CMGI. Uh, and uh, CMGI decided that Ancestry didn't quite fit very well with, uh, with the dot, you know, the dot com boom kind of uh, things. But, you know, it actually got people were actually paying to use the uh, use the service, which just didn't fit into uh, into the standard mold. And so uh, they fired the uh, the president of the company, CEO of the company, brought in a guy from from California uh, who wanted to wanted to spend more time in um, San Francisco than he did in Provo, Utah, which is where Ancestry's headquarters or was and is headquartered. And so I started flying back and forth to Utah, and we opened up a New York office. And so I started flying back and forth to New York. I got a bazillion uh, uh, airline miles. But just not, you know, it wasn't going anywhere. And so the uh, the CEO uh, sat down with me one day and said, hey, we just, you know, you know, we've just acquired this other company and 
and they're located in San Francisco. And basically, I'd like a guy in San Francisco to take over, you know, to take over your job. And um, and so I said, sure, fine. Um, and uh, he he ended up getting fired about six weeks after he let me go. And so it just all changed all at once. I went to uh, work for got called by a headhunter. Uh, like a week after I uh, left Ancestry, I was working for a company that is currently Domo.com. I don't know if uh, if you're familiar with them, but they do business analytics, uh, uh, very high-end charting, graphing, and so forth uh, over the internet. And uh, that, that worked out well. And then it's sort of a series of other uh, small company items, uh, or small company, small tech companies and so forth. And then finally, I just, uh, you know, I'd sort of, sort of, uh, uh, I, well, yeah, I'd be fair to say burned out. Uh, and so I, um, had some stock in a variety of different uh, organizations and managed to sell it. Um, and it was not, uh, it was not, uh, never have to work again money, but it was enough. So I, could uh, uh, just decide what I wanted to do. My wife's uh, an author, and she's been an author for, well, she wouldn't like me to tell you how many years, but for a long time. And so um, I can't remember where I I got the ebook thing. Uh, that you know was first exposed to to uh, ebooks, and so um, I started you know talking with her about that and. Uh, and um, uh, she was uh, traditionally published with a, a couple of different publishers. And I basically said, you know, I think you can make more money on this Amazon place uh, selling ebooks. And uh, and so uh, she she told her publisher that what she wanted to do. And her publisher said, well, we've got a contract with you. And so um, – I said, uh, let's see the contract. It was one of those things where she asked me to look at it when she'd signed it years earlier. And I'd looked at it, but I had not really looked at it, you know, because these publishers were, were very reputable in the industry and so forth. So anyway, so I looked at the contract, discovered that that lo and behold, there were a few problems with it. And they were doing a few things that uh, they were not – uh, authorized to do in the contract, and so one of the things was they were publishing ebooks, uh, ebook versions of my wife's books, and uh, they didn't have any authorization to do so uh, under the publishing agreements. And uh, it had one of those standard provisions that you see in in almost every publishing agreement that says something like, you know, all rights not granted by the author to the publisher are retained by the author. Um, most of the time, publishers uh, do an extensive job of taking all rights that make sense, but this publisher had never thought of anything like ebooks, and so they'd, they'd neglected to ask for them. So uh, anyway, so we had, I had a cup, you know, a few, uh, let's say, heartfelt discussions with uh, the publisher's uh, lawyers, and uh, we got, Rights to her books, 
she got rights to her books. The publisher had or was able to to also publish the books, but uh, I had an idea that we could do a better job and sell way more books than the publisher would. And so, anyway, so that got me started in in uh, self publishing for my wife. Uh, she had like a lot of authors. Uh, she has a lot of author friends, and um, I kept on. You know, they kept on calling me, and then I started the Passive Voice. Basically, because I couldn't find another blog that really talked about these things uh, in the way that was interesting for me. And uh, and lo and behold, uh, uh, my wife wasn't the only one that signed a bad publishing agreement. And I started getting contacts. And right now I represent uh, authors from all over the world. I, I, I've lost track of the number of non-U.S. countries, uh, but quite a few. Um, all of them have, con you know, all of them, not all of them. Uh, initially, all of them had contracts with uh, U.S. publishers. Now it's moved into a different area of, okay, well, how do I do, deal with, uh, with my cover artist? You know, uh, it's a handshake kind of thing. Do I need something else? Uh, Co-author. What am I going to do with a co-author? Uh, I'm worried because I heard, you know, there was this big fuss between uh, uh, two co-authors, and I don't want to have one of those. Uh, that sort of thing. And so it's uh, it's been uh, it's been very interesting, and and it's been interesting to sort of see the technology come into the publishing industry uh, compared to some other industries. They were they were pretty late. Uh, to that, the the New York publishers are still pretty pretty late uh, to that. But that's uh, let's see. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking right now yeah, because yeah. my wife is gonna come roaring in here pretty soon and tell me that I'm I'm off my meds or something. Well, no, thank thank you very much. Um, uh, you told the story very well and gave me a lot of things to talk about. Um, uh, thanks for setting the stage that way. Um, one really interesting part of your story that, that intrigued me when I was doing research for the interview was uh, when I saw that you studied speech at Northwestern. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering, going all the way back to that, what, what does it mean to study speech? <laughs> you mean in terms of having a, a – rather than having a real major uh, there? So uh, Northwestern has a has – and I, I'm sure they call it communications now, but uh, then it was speech. Uh, they have a, an extremely good uh, program in speech. Uh, a lot of people I went to school with uh, became Broadway producers uh, uh, and so forth. A couple became uh, actors. Uh, one, my you know, one of my favorite favorite ones was a a friend uh, whose name was Clyde Kuzatsu, and. Uh, he, you know, he was not like the leading man kind of guy, but he was a really good guy and he was a good actor. And uh, after graduation, I didn't ever, you know, I did sort of forgot about him. And then one night I was uh, I was watching Star Trek Next Gen and Admiral Nomura came on and that was Clyde. Wow. And so uh, anyway, so Clyde had a had a whole lot of uh a whole lot of parts like that, you know, I uh, went to the movies one time and there was this movie about, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor and, you know, and there was Clyde. He was attacking Pearl Harbor and uh, and I thought it was really cool. So yeah. anyway, so speech, performing arts, that kind of thing. That's that's what 
that's what uh, I was involved with there. And, uh, and, uh, and being, go ahead. being a good lawyer obviously involves being a good communicator and being uh, very good with language. And I wanted to ask you if you, if you felt that your work studying speech helped, helped you in that, in that regard throughout your career. Sure, uh, absolutely. Because otherwise, it would not have done anything for me. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I did. You know, I I, um, the, I mentioned I did a lot of speaking about computers and so forth. I also, uh, in my day job, I did a lot of litigation. You know, talking to uh, to juries and judges and such. And uh, so, yeah. So it was very much a very much a good. It ended up being a very good thing for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you invoke an interesting question of the way people sort of perceive the utility of various majors. I, I was an English major and, and oh. a major in my time. Um, and one thing, I've, I've actually thought a lot about it because from one perspective, you'd think you use language in everything you do all the time, including your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what could be more practical than understanding that mm-hmm. and being good at that? Um, but a lot of people don't, don't agree. Um, and I, my, my just sort of, you know, pub table theory is that there's two there's two things that contribute to that one is that because we use language all the time we all think we're good at it um, <laughs> yeah and we sort yeah. of live unexamined lives that way but the other thing is that's tricky and which is what makes the problem so wide or the misperceptions about the practicality of studying these things so widespread is that my little phrase is it's the kind of power that you must first possess in order to then perceive mm-hmm. and, oh i like that yeah it took me well thanks it took me a while to work that one out but you can't see the power it gives you until you possess that power. And that it's that invisibility um, that, that perpetuates the idea that you don't actually learn anything useful when you learn about these things. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's had, a, it's, it's had a, a really great benefit down to this day for me because uh, uh, the particular area that I was in was uh, – I believe the full name of it was the oral interpretation of literature. And so that involved uh, a very rigorous an- analysis, as, as uh, you probably had with, uh, with your English major, very rigorous analysis of a literary work or poem or a short story, whatever, something that you were going to perform. Uh, but the idea of, of, of this of, of the particular area that I was in is that, you know, you couldn't perform it well unless you really understood, you know, everything that the author was putting into it. And so, uh, I mean, you could, I spent a lot of time digging through a sonnet, you know, looking for all the words and all the meanings and all of the so forth. And so, um, I draw a direct line from, from, uh, uh, rigorously analyzing uh, a scene in a Shakespearean play to rigorously analyzing contracts uh, and agreements, uh, and uh, I I think it uh, I, I don't think I know that that experience uh, helped me develop a, a critical thinking skill and a critical analysis skill when it comes to words and combinations of words. Yeah, and then combining that that type of analysis and expertise with um, communicating well yeah. uh, is just incredibly powerful. You mentioned, actually, I didn't know this uh, from your profile online, that you worked in advertising in Chicago. I um, did. Uh, I might be off on the timing a little bit, but was that around, you know, the Mad Men days of advertising? You know, it was uh, 
technically it was after the Mad Men days, but you know what? It didn't uh, – not much had changed then. Uh, big uh, advertising budgets, uh, not many women, uh, um, losing accounts, getting accounts and so forth uh, and uh, – for me, one of them, one of the, one of my memories is dogs love cheese. I got put on the uh, assigned to the uh, dog food account, and uh, and our client decided to put cheese bits into their dog food, and so uh, it was our job to sell this dog food, and uh, so we came up with dogs love cheese, and there were we we had a series of of very beautiful. Uh, commercials with all these talented dogs doing all kinds of things, uh, you know, running off the end of a dock, catching a frisbee in the air, and then falling into the lake and so forth. So, anyway, so dogs love cheese. Um, That's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, I've got some questions about about technology and your your adoption of it. Um, uh, you worked for LexisNexis, you mentioned, and it's it's really interesting because you, you also mentioned at one point that um, the trade publishing industry has been slow to adapt to technology yep. in lots yep. of ways. And I, I remember uh, from one of my first interviews for this podcast, I interviewed Thad McElroy, um, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you've heard of. And he, he, he may have been the first or involved in the very first project in, in America where a book was sort of produced entirely using desktop publishing technology. Mm-hmm. This was in the mid eighties. Right. And then, and then Apple found out and someone contacted him and like, they basically, you know, sort of flew him out to talk to him about what he'd done and work with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were there at the beginning of a very important moment for legal publishing yep. when you were working for LexisNexis. Lexis Nexus. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what that time was like and um, what it was like working on one of the first web, because there was another tech, not just this sort of paper publishing technology and electronic publishing, but there was also, you know, the web was was becoming a real thing. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what, what that was like and the impact you saw this technology have in a very short period of time, I think, on the legal publishing world. Yeah, it had it, it had a big impact. And uh, I was I was uh, actually responsible for the first web based uh, product that uh, Lexus uh, uh, offered. Prior to that time, you had to install software on your on your computer and and do dial up and so forth. And so uh, we we had the first one that you accessed with a web browser. Uh, it had a tremendous impact because uh, uh, lawyers at that point in time were so focused on books. If you went into a, a big law office uh, at some place as you walked through there, you'd see a, a library that was just stu- you know stuffed with books. And uh, and if you were doing research and you didn't have them in your own, have the right books in your own library, you might have to go over to a university. You might have to to go to uh, uh, another law firm's library in order to uh, to access books that they had in theirs. And uh, it was very much a, uh, a a situation of of being bound with books and with with Lexis. The cool thing was uh, that you could find all kinds of stuff that none of the aides uh, that um, uh, were developed to help lawyers find cases and statutes that were relevant uh, in the in the printed world uh, did not have nearly the scope 
as uh, as uh, the electronic your ability to electronically search, and that's where I learned, you know, search technology and search search uh, tactics uh, and so forth. That uh, again, I still use I still use to this day. But I there was one where um, uh, while I was still practicing, uh, again I. I got offered a lot of a lot of free stuff uh, uh, from legally oriented uh, tech companies, and this was another online research firm. And I, during this time, I did a lot of work for Legal Aid, which was a a service that provides uh, legal legal help for low income individuals. And I got a client that um, had defaulted on his student loans. Just simple as that. And uh, and um, uh, that he was a legal aid client, didn't have much money, owed a zillion dollars, and I got the uh, um, uh, I sent a letter to the uh, to the uh, uh, justice department, uh, the local uh, attorney um, and justice department attorney, saying, "Hey." Let's see if we can work something out or whatever. So anyway, I got a about a two-inch thick stack of paper arriving in my office about three days later, and it was their standard pleading that they had used a zillion times before to get a summary judgment uh, against my client. And that summary judgment is basically there are no you know this is a slam dunk deal. There's no issues and so forth. Uh, and so, judge, just go ahead and drop the hammer on this guy. And so, I I uh, pulled out the electronic uh, legal research, online legal research, and I hunted around. And lo and behold, uh, I found something that this was a veterans uh, veterans administration uh, loan, and I found something that they were supposed to do in the statute that nobody had ever evidently looked at that they hadn't done. And so uh, and so I prepared my own. I didn't make it two inches thick. I made it about about 20 pages thick. My own motion for summary judgment against the United States government saying, you know, this statute says they're supposed to do this. They haven't done it. Judge, we win. And uh, darn if the judge didn't agree with me. And it was just the slickest thing. Uh, because I don't think anybody at the U.S. Attorney's Office had the slightest idea that this statute existed. Yeah, it's really, it's a really, that's a really great story. It um, reminds me, I, I watched Anatomy of a Murder recently. Oh yeah, um, and that has a, a a scene that's typical of sort of legal. Uh, portrayals of the law mm -hmm. and, and criminal court and things like that, where somebody goes hunting through a book to find some kind of precedent that they yep. can use, unexpected precedent that they can use. And that, that story of using using a new technology to search text uh, is not only just great in itself, but also um, goes perhaps some way towards explaining why some areas in the production of texts uh, adopted technology faster yep. Than, yep. Than, than other sort of variations of the same industry did. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, that that leads me to this might be a little bit left field, but talking about technology and and the law in particular, um, one thing that people are talking about a lot these days is the impact that things like you know deep learning or machine learning and AI will have on employment. Um, and one thing you do hear about sometimes is 
that this is going to have an impact on the legal profession and maybe take away, you know, jobs for millions of lawyers, uh, you know, insert lawyer joke here. But um, uh, what do, do you think? Do you think that that's actually going to happen? Uh, it certainly is going to change the way lawyers practice, but um, uh, and it it help uh, you know it'll accelerate and help them do more things. But the what happens with you know one of the uh, one of the great things about being a lawyer is that uh, uh, human nature plays a role in all of this. This is not just. Uh, cold logic and uh, and applying rules mechanically uh, uh, if if it weren't for human nature there wouldn't be any lawyers around and so uh, people will continue to do dumb things and uh, and uh, artificial intelligent artificially intelligent uh, legal systems uh, won't prevent them from doing that and so it's basically a you know it's 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 a competitive it, it's an adversarial system it's designed to to be that and um, and you know you get somebody on either side and uh, you know trying to come up with a way of representing their client well and you get uh, what passes for innovation in the legal world that way uh, just by people uh, just by that clash and so in terms of uh, of its impact on lawyers uh, it's it's our it's going to have more you know the technology is going to have more impact uh, it's already had a lot of impact Um but I don't think it's going to put lawyers out of business just because um, the rules. Well, first of all, you've got you know you got to think of who actually creates the laws, and uh, for the United States, it's the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives, and those doofuses don't know you know don't know what they're doing half the time, and so. You've got lobbyists that put this provision and that provision and so forth, and you know it's uh, the 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 quote law. If you're talking about the statutes that that are passed by legislatures, is uh, you know it's got a lot of holes in it. It's got a lot of unintended consequences and uh, and and things that that people never thought about while they were making it, but are right there on you know in section 15. Speaking of. Um adversarial systems and politics. Um, that gives me an opportunity to segue into the next part of the interview where I'd like to talk to you about intellectual property. Okay. Um, uh, for those listening, uh, David has kindly taken the time to talk to me on uh, election day in the States, um, the consequences of which are going to be potentially very big. Um, and one of the very high level issues that's taken, you know, occasionally gets to the front of the stage um, in American politics now is actually uh, intellectual property theft uh, of American mm -hmm. in information or intellectual property IP, which we'll say uh, by China. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask you, given your experience, you know, in litigation and with uh, technology and with intellectual property issues, um, is there anything that can be done, genuinely done to stop China from stealing intellectual property from American owners of that IP? No, in a, in, you know, in a word, no. Uh, the intellectual property relies upon the law for its its existence and its value, 
And in the United States, in uh, in Europe, uh, intellectual property is protected uh, very nicely by a series of laws that uh, uh, are enforced uh, with regularity that says, no, you can't take this. This is intellectual property. It's protected under, the, under our law. And um, until China – moves into that kind of a, an attitude towards towards intellectual property and and the Chinese government says okay well you know company a uh, you you stole this from somebody else and they that is protected intellectual property and so we're going to drop the hammer on you uh, for for doing this and until China gets to that point and and I'm not a I'm not an expert on China, but it's pretty clear to me that in the IP area, they're not at that point at all. Um, then uh, it's going to be really tough to protect uh, uh, intellect, U.S. intellectual property from being utilized in China. Now, if they, you know, let's say borrow it for their own use in China and ship products back to the U.S., then, then that falls under U.S. jurisdiction, and you can you can drop the hammer. But if they're if they're if they're created in China and are exported to uh, a, a third world country, uh, you're not going to be able to you're, you know you're not going to be able to protect protect it. And one of the problems is that IP can be embedded in devices, embedded in systems, and Absent the ability to really dig in and understand how those systems work and what's going on inside, you may not even know that your intellectual property is is utilized uh, in there, inside there. So go ahead. Yeah. Speaking of um, what, what one knows or not, um, I actually had a, a question to ask you about um, intellectual property infringements and litigation generally. I know that, uh, or at least I, I, my understanding is that at a certain point you you had a business where you purchased a bunch of IP. Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention that. Yeah, and then you licensed it out. And uh, I think mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of people actually like might not be aware that that actually is a way you can run a business. You, like intellectual property is real property that you can own, and then you can license it out to people, and you can also litigate against people who infringe against your uh, ownership of the patent or what what have you. And one question I, I had is just generally speaking, if one discovers a patent infringement, is it usually uh, something that the infringer knew they were doing? Um. It, it will vary a lot depending on what sort of technology or industry you're in. But generally speaking, most of the time, it's – in my experience, in the in the situations that I'm familiar with, uh, it's unintentional. It's just basically ignorance uh, because there are so many patents that uh, in the process of developing a new product, it's almost impossible to say, all right, well, we've checked every single patent that might apply and we're clean. Uh, just in, in part because, because the patents may be written in such a way that they're designed to cover product A, but uh, without anybody really intending it, but according to the, to the words of the patents, uh, they also cover so, uh, an element in product B as well that nobody thought of when uh, when they got the patent to protect uh, protect the technology in product A, and so it's not a simple thing to uh, to you know do a 
a, a for sure uh, due diligence. This is this does not uh, violate any patent anywhere. Uh, really hard to say that you can you can avoid some you know some some of the big mountains, but uh, but there are going to be some uh, some potholes that you just cannot foresee. And and given given that um, it's often uh, the the infringer is unaware. What's the first step that you would take as a as a an owner or or a you know an, an attorney representing an owner in approaching someone who's been infringing? Is your goal to get them to pay you uh, you know a license fee? Or is it to off to, or is it to sue them? It depends on what it depends on what you're doing. If uh, if you're an independent inventor, uh, like uh, like one of my uh, one of the people I worked with a long time ago, uh, you want a license. You you want to you want people to buy licenses, and uh, you probably again most uh, a lot of inventors have the you know are engineers of one sort of or, or another and engineers seem to be you know generally as a group in my experience are very practical and and uh, they don't want to have a lawsuit they'd rather just go ahead and get paid uh, for the technology and so from that standpoint uh, uh, you know what you do and how you approach approach it generally you want a license first uh, before you sue but the 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 range of people on the other side i mean let's let's take a hypothetical if you tell apple that they can't uh they can't uh sell the ipad without uh licensing a technology from you that you developed you know in your garage a couple of years ago um they're not well, it's, I'm, I won't say they're not. They're unlikely to say, oh, my gosh, we never realized that. How much do you want uh, You know, so we don't have to redesign every iPad that, uh, that goes out now? And so there's a you – know, you know, uh, well, let's, let's just say that almost – it's a pretty good, pretty good rule that the larger the tech company, uh, the less uh, – likely they are to uh, say, oh my gosh, we always want to obey the law. We never want to violate anybody's patents. And so let us do the right thing right away. Uh, usually there's a, there's a fight. Uh, yeah. Speaking of fights, actually, that leads me to my next question, which is about copyright reform in the EU. And this is related to, you know, what we've been talking yeah. about, about um, uh, enforcement and of, mm -hmm. of infringe of infringement and there's something that listeners uh may have heard of called article 13 mm -hmm. um which uh you know gets represented kind of cartoonishly as an internet filter uh, mm -hmm. that under one of the things that people are concerned about is that this eu legislation could actually mean that you're not allowed to do anything online without what you're doing being scrutinized by some kind of software to make sure you're not infringing on any copyright um do you think that's an accurate representation of what's uh, happening that is certainly one of the aspirations they have. Um, um, I will say that from a technology standpoint, um, I think you can do some level of copyright checking or whatever, but there are so many copyrights on so many different things that the job of, of putting all those claims into uh, into some sort of a computer screening program is just never going to work. Um, that said, 
uh, one of the th one of the things about the internet is that, of course, you've got the search engines there, and if you've you know if you think somebody may be violating a copyright, it's very simple to to go ahead and and drop in uh, search you know big search and see what comes up. Uh, you can take your you know chapter one and uh, and uh, or as much of it as as will fit into a Google query and see if it appears anywhere that you don't expect it to. So there is, there's some ability to do that, but ab, you know, the, it is, well, yeah, it's impossible for an individual author to know everything that has been written about any topic other than the most minute and, and, tightly constrained uh, subject. And so, um, you know, again, like, like with, uh, with technology, sometimes the, uh, the uh, copyright violations are unintentional, generally speaking. Somebody picked up something on the internet and, and used it as a basis for, you know, part of what they wrote or whatever. And so, you know, it's, it's unintentional. And uh, I think, Article 13 certainly can cause a lot of harm, but is it going to guarantee that creators are uh, properly compensated for their work? Uh, uh No, I don't think so. Thank you for that. That was actually going to be my next question. I've asked a number of people on this podcast that question, you know, regardless of what one's opinion might be about what should and shouldn't happen, is it actually going to benefit uh, content creators? And thank you for the, the clear answer on that. Um, uh, moving on to talking more perhaps more specifically about books uh, and the publishing world. Um, you've negotiated publishing contracts with big New York firms as well as with Amazon. And without asking you about any particulars at all, I was wondering if you could talk about, I think people might be curious about if, like, say, the negotiators from Amazon might have a different style than the negotiators from the New York firms. Uh, the answer is Yes, in some ways, uh, no in others. Uh, Amazon, the approach of Amazon is, at least for me, with, with, uh, with uh, a lot of experience in a variety of technology areas, is a tech company's approach, which, is, which tends to be more pragmatic. Uh, hey, we need to accomplish this. Uh, let's do something fair. You know, we're talking about the internet where uh, where people give away information and whatever for free all the time uh, and so they there's kind of that um, uh, you know let's let's work with these folks rather than trying to beat them over the head uh, that's a different attitude than you get from a traditional New York publisher uh, because they don't the attitude towards authors is almost, treating them like children, emotional children uh, sometimes. And, uh, and authors are, for, for a lot of New York publishers, authors are a necessary evil uh, other than the, the biggest sellers. And, what, you know, and they're, they're happy to, they're happy to, to, to uh, grant the, you know, the, the huge sellers uh, uh, credit for being intelligent and all of that sort of thing. But th they get bombarded with so much crap from uh, from authors who want to be published and uh, that 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 attitude is kind of built in that uh, you know most of most of most of the people that were you know most of the authors we're dealing with are idiots who don't know how to you know how to do anything and it's sort of 
builds up over time uh, and, and becomes institutionalized, has become institutionalized uh, in, a, in a lot of – well, in every major publisher that I've dealt with in New York – uh, and it and that attitude goes carries over to the general counsel uh, as well. Speaking of big authors and emotional children, you actually just reminded me um, when I was preparing for this interview. I inter listened to an interview you did, I think, about four years ago now, um, for a podcast. Shortly after you were flown out to a debate in New York, which I believe pitted you. Oh my gosh! Yeah, against like a whole suite of other kind of people representing publishing companies uh, on a stage in New York. Uh, uh -huh. And um, one of the uh, other participants was James Patterson, I believe. Right, right. Um, and there was a sort of cliffhanger at the end of the, at least for me, at listening to this mm -hmm. four-year-old interview where, you know, they, they were proposing that they might do another, another debate at a certain point later on. Uh, and I guess I wanted to ask you first, did, did, did another debate happen around, this was around the Amazon Hachette and, and, and right. controversy. Right. Was there an, ever another debate and did you participate? Uh, not there to my, to the best of my knowledge, there was not another debate. Uh, I, I did not participate in any other debates. I would have been happy to do so. But, um, you know, it's it's a weird mentality in the publishing business. There's it's denial, denial, denial up one side and down the other. And uh, they just don't want the world to change. Uh, they sh you know, if uh, I would think that an economically rational publisher would love ebooks because, you know, all all they are is bits you know, you upload your bits once to Amazon, and then you just uh, watch the money roll in from that ebook. You know, from here on forward, and uh, it's 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 a uh, you know it's it's much less hassle than dealing with Barnes and Noble and bookstores and Ingrams and and printers and and all of that kind of stuff. It's just it's it's almost an ideal money making uh, situation. Uh, you know, if you if you look at it that way, but obviously they're worried about being dis disintermediated, and Amazon is happy to do that. I, you know, I think if if it would be interesting in a in an alternate history uh, thing to have the publishers all welcome Amazon with open arms and say we want to work with you we'll we'll work with you and yeah you want to sell cheap and we'll work with you on that and uh, we want to be your partners we want to you know we want to help you out as much as we can to be you know the best possible bookstore you can be as opposed to you know trying to fixed prices and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, Amazon, I think Amazon viewed properly uh, what should have been seen as the best thing that could ever happen to publishing in terms of profits, because ebooks are just lovely for profits. Yeah, that, that, um, that's, uh, that reminds me of a couple of things. One, just a very brief anecdote. I don't have too many personal publishing industry anecdotes, but um, Yes, on the subject of denial, I was at the Book Expo, or formerly called, referred to as Book Expo America in New York in 2013, and I saw a panel uh, with a lot of potentates on it, including the CEO of Simon & Schuster, and I believe it was the CEO of Overdrive, um, mm. if I'm remembering yeah. correctly, and the CEO of the, the uh, of, I think it was Overdrive, but a company of that kind, I remember right. him excitedly, excitedly waving an iPad in the face 
of this very dignified um, and uh, uh, calm CEO of Simon and Schuster, and he was shouting, "This thing is real! It already exists. Uh, it's not coming in the future. It's here now." Um, and it is it is just such an interesting thing to me about how there's this this around the subject of technology and the issue of technology. There's just so much frustration on all sides in the in the trade book publishing world. Yep. Um, and I mean, do you, do you, we, we can ask the, the question, you know, why, why do people, why, well, I guess my question would be, why don't they embrace, um, this technology? Is it really as straightforward as like their, their, their profit is made around the physical constraints that come from having something be incarnated in paper form? Yeah, it's, 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 they, they know how to make money in the, quote, current marketplace, or maybe it's uh, the recent past marketplace, and they've got all their systems in place to do well there, and they know what kind of competition they're going to run into, uh, and and uh, and who can get in the bookstores and who can't, and that sort of thing. And they, they, they at some level, this is not conscious, but they don't want the world to change. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a a specific story in the legal publishing world, and legal publishing is extraordinarily profitable, very high profit margin. And one of the companies, or one of the publish publications that Lexus uh, owned, was uh, something called Martindale Hubble. And Martindale Hubble, for since time immemorial, has published a directory of the attorneys in the United States. And um, you can, you know, it's 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 an old idea that that you see online, but you can get a standard uh, mention in there for no charge. You know, they want to be the phone book that everybody uses, but if you want a more prominent position, if you want to, you know, if you want to be able to write some things about how wonderful your law firm is and how, and, and how accomplished your, your lawyers are, you've got to pay them essentially for advertising uh, to sit there. And um, when I f first got there, they were in, and LexisNexis is maybe after Thompson, um, the most profitable uh, publisher in the world makes New York publishing look like a bunch of you know uh, small timers. Uh, I mean, we're talking about net margins of fifty percent or more. Um, and so, anyway, so Martindale Hubble, uh, when I got there, was the most profitable in terms of percentage profit of any company in LexisNexis. This is a company that that has worldwide publishing. Um, and I go in and say, you know, this online stuff is going to change your world and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, 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 is the response. Uh, three years after I came on board, basically Martindale Hubble collapsed financially. Everybody got fired. Uh, it became, I think they still do some contract printing once a little bit, but it became basically an online directory. And so it went from the most profitable to bust very quickly. And uh, I 
don't have a bit of problem seeing that uh, that traditional publishers, traditional trade publishers, could take the same route. Uh, you know, it just you know it just is. Uh, you know, they got to watch their prices because if you know a thirty dollar printed book compared to to the ebook prices, I mean. Yeah, there are people that want to buy them, and yeah, there are people that still think that that having a lot of books in their in their homes is a real cool thing. Uh, but you know, the market is just is not headed in that direction. And uh, you know, it's uh, you know, when I was little, there were no e-books, and I enjoyed sitting down with a printed book and all that. But you know, those days are past. I'm I'm e-book only essentially, and uh, and. That's the direction the world's heading. Yes, speaking of $30 books, um, that gives me an opportunity to move on to the last part of the interview where we talk about recent things that have been happening in the publishing industry. And I, mm-hmm. I saw one of your blog posts on the Passive Voice uh, where you talked about how um, p- conventional publishers have a term they use called premium price loyalty. Uh-huh. refer to a certain type of approach to selling books and pricing books. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what they really mean when they talk about premium price loyalty well it's basically it's um sort of uh, uh status signaling in a way and uh it 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 goes back to uh we would rather make fifteen dollars on a single you know on on the sale of a hundred books than take the risk of making a dollar on the sale each on the sale of a hundred thousand books, um, and it's um, they they it's at some level they want to publish or they want to position some kinds of books as luxury items, semi-luxury items, whatever. And uh, I'm sure you've seen the, the 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 books that get printed with these, you know, uh, you know, um, baby chinchilla bindings and so forth that are just extraordinarily beautiful objects. But, you know, the, the, the information inside is is no different than you know, a bunch of bits that you can get down as an ebook, And so they're, they have this – they like – the publishers like the position that they they hold in some people's minds of just being, you know, really intellectually cool, you know, avant people that, that really count in the intellectual firmament of, uh, of New York City or London or wherever. And so part of this is, you know, we, we have Corinthian leather uh, collections of books that only the most discerning customers will, uh, will be able to buy. And it's just you know, it's 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 the old one of the oldest things in marketing, and that's upselling. Uh, you know, adding bells and whistles to to uh, you know your base product and and calling it the super deluxe product. Yeah, it's it's something that um, I I personally you know can't help but be very cynical about this connection that is often attempted to that publishers will often attempt to establish between price and quality. Um, right. You know, for example, I mean, I think I think it's a well known fact that people. Uh, when they taste a, a bottle of wine, if they're told it's worth $50, they're more yep. likely to uh, rate it higher than they would if they were uh-huh. told it was worth $5. And there is some a sort of crude analog that happens in the world of books where, you know, if something is cheap, 
uh, people associated with lower quality writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this even happens in, you know, people often relate to things that come in electronic format as though they're not quite as real mm-hmm. as things that come in sort of physical format. And so you get a kind of like ontological argument, basically, that like, you know, the, the, the existence of the printed thing uh, makes the content somehow uh, better. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I've often, I've, like, excuse me, and I often sort of like to take the opportunity in that in those conversations to observe that, you know, you can, you can tell when someone hasn't experienced a true desire to read a certain set of words uh, and hasn't also experienced scarcity when, mm-hmm. when they value, when they have th- that, mm-hmm. these alternative ways of valuing what books really are and mean. Um, and, you know, anything you can, t- from a certain perspective, anything you can do to reduce the price of a book for the reader is better for culture and better for knowledge. Um, you know, as long as as long as creators are still being appropriately compensated, and having a way of delivering those words to people that cuts down on the cost without necessarily cutting into the profit, uh, like you're saying, can work with ebooks. Um, you know, seems like it would be something that people who really cared about culture and really cared about knowledge would embrace fully. I absolutely agree, and uh, you know, the the traditional publishers love to be thought of as curators of the culture and curators of the the art of uh, of writing and so forth and they like that image and uh, you know that's uh, no no offense to English majors but that's uh, one of the things that attracts so many English majors to the uh, publishing world is that yeah I want to be one of those people who 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 somebody says oh I love that book can you tell me what the author is like or something like that you know sort of the in crowd uh, there but you're right if you're if you're talking about proliferating knowledge out to the general population in the most efficient and effective way possible, you don't do it in a in a thirty dollar hardcover, uh, and you don't do it in uh, a uh, a copy uh, in the library that you you know that that somebody has to wait two months before on the waiting list before they can uh, they can get it. You know you do it by shipping a bunch of bits out. And proliferating so that no matter where you are, you can be 100 miles from a library, you still have the ability to consume uh, and and learn and benefit from uh, the knowledge that the author is communicating and the and the, the wisdom that the uh, that the author has developed by study and and whatever. And so it's you know if if, if you're talking about Providing access, real access to important information to the widest possible audience uh, for their benefit, the benefit of humankind, if you will. Uh, you know, you don't charge an arm and leg for it. You don't require that they buy it from a bookstore that that uh, marks, you know, doubles the doubles the wholesale price. Uh, you make it widely available and uh, and let everybody. Pick what they want and sell it for something that that is not going to take a day's wages for a poor person to buy. On the subject of paper books, actually, um, there's an interesting scandal happening right now uh, around Abe books. Uh, oh, yeah. I actually happen to 
live in Victoria, British Columbia, where Abe Books oh. is based. Um, so that's just a fun coincidence. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, right now, Abe Books sent out some emails to some of its customers, I believe, in South Korea, the Czech Republic, Russia, and maybe one or two other countries saying that, you know, they're not going to be providing, allowing those booksellers, who often tend to be antiquarian booksellers, uh, to sell their books via Abe Books. And as a result of this news getting out and the high-handed manner in which it was communicated, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, antiquarian booksellers around the world have banded together and pulled, I think, up to, I think, around 2.7 million books from sale temporarily on Abe mm -hmm. Books. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing to me about, one of the interesting things to me about it is that Abe Books um, said they're doing this because, quote, our third-party payment service provider is closing at the end of the year, end quote. Mm -hmm. And that just does not sound like an Amazon <laughs> to do to say like yeah. sorry nothing we can do here folks our third party providers stop like I that is not the reputation that you know Amazon's culture has uh, definitely not and so I mean can you do you, do you have any thoughts I mean obviously just hypothetical but do you have any thoughts about what what's really going on I I can't imagine that if a books uh, contacted. Uh, uh, you know, somebody at Amazon that Amazon does not have third-party payment uh, processors uh, that a books could use. Uh, I, it's just one of those kind of dumb things that you wonder why. You know, the, well, let's just say that Amazon has a lot of really smart people working for it, but that does not uh, does not mean that everybody is smart that's working for Amazon. I mean, it's that's that's clearly foreseeable as a disastrous PR thing and and hard on the brand. And I, I have, you know, I would bet good money that that. Uh, the the CEO of Abe Books got a nasty call or a nasty email uh, from somebody at Amazon saying, "What what'd you do this for? Why didn't you just you know let's just integrate what you're doing in with our own payment processing and uh, and keep keep the lights on uh, all over the world as far as Abe Books is concerned." It seemed really really a dumb thing and uh, and you know demonstrates that smart people and smart companies sometimes do dumb things. Yeah, it struck me that yeah, thanks for that great great opinion. Uh, it 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 um it struck me that in addition to coming across as dumb, it came across as weak. Right. And that right. That, that was perhaps what surprised me the most that, you know, uh that that yeah, then anyway, that someone like that would, would be at that sort of relatively high level in the Amazon ecosystem. And just for those listening, Amazon owns, owns eight books. They bought them about 10 years ago, uh, which is why we're talking about Amazon and eight books as though they're kind of connected because, because they are. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, I think, becoming a bit of a theme to be the last thing we talk about on this podcast, which is Barnes & Noble, um, which yep. uh, continues to be um, entertaining to watch. <laughs> Outside, <laughs> outside observer and and it's really it's really it, it's sort of in its own kind of mild corporate scandal hum uh really quite an extraordinary situation so it, uh, i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the latest the latest developments uh in barnes and noble news uh the latest that i have seen is that um wh smith was in negotiations with barnes and noble to acquire them and uh, 
And that, for some reason, uh, the acquisition blew up. And uh, there are the Barnes and Noble, as is, is, uh, some of your audience knows, is uh, is suing their former president, uh, and the president is suing them for for violating his uh, his employment contract. And this is what the fourth president in five years or something like that. I mean, it's some it's it's definitely a revolving door uh, for uh, the presidency of Barnes and Noble, and uh, and. The their last president uh, has filed suit for violating his employment agreement. Barnes and Noble's made a nasty uh, response, and uh, in, in this case, as in most cases, uh, the court documents are public documents and available for anybody to see. And so they're kind of, you know, trading nastiness back and forth. And I, you know, I don't know what. What is going on there? I mean, it's there's there have been reports that uh, uh, Leonard Rio, who's the guy that founded uh, Barnes and Noble and still still is the chairman of the board and the CEO and so forth, uh, that he wants to buy it back. Uh, but Barnes and Noble is just is is not a healthy company financially from everything that I know, and they're in prime position to to uh, do another borders. I mean, we remember what happens when when borders sort of ran out of gas and just collapsed very quickly. I don't know that I'm not predicting anything like that for Barnes and Noble, and I have no inside information about Barnes and Noble, but they just seem to be, you know, there, there's there's more. Going on, they're, they're not they're not dumb people, but they're acting in a dumb manner. I think by having a public spat with their pres former president. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's 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 very strange to see things being sort of rep looking like they're being taken personally at the level of like the executives, yeah. the C suite of a of a uh, public company. I mean, to counter sue an individual for disloyalty, uh, yeah. does not come across as the behavior of serious people uh, who are, you know, taking care of their company properly to be blunt about it. Um, I used to, in a former life, I was an investment banker and I worked in mergers and acquisitions. It wasn't in, in the publishing world. Uh, but, you know, that one of the details, and it didn't just leap out to me, but, you know, one of the details had uh, um, emerged around the time of the former president's uh, lawsuit against the company was that there had been a potential acquirer now revealed to probably have been mm -hmm. W.H. Smith from the UK who got to the due diligence phase of the process and that's when they, they pulled out. Um, and it seems, I mean, one possibility, again, just totally, this is just me, my opinion from reading the news, is that someone really thinks that they can blow smoke around that due diligence issue and whatever it is mm -hmm. found in the books. And like, I can say from experience, like you, you cannot hide anything. Um, uh, if there is something stinky, uh, yep. it it will be found. And even and this is the thing: like even if it's not found by a potential acquirer during the due diligence phase, when they get to see all the books, if they find it afterwards, that's bad for you too. Um, exactly, exactly. And Barnes and Noble, Noble is a public company and and has a, a legal obligation to make disclosures, appropriate disclosures of financially meaningful information in a timely manner so that 
their stockholders and the and the market in general uh, can make decisions in terms of buying, selling, pricing, and so forth. And and um, and so if you know, again, this is pure speculation, but uh, you know, you sort of wonder if if W. H. Smith found something really nasty, like you suggested, that that uh, has not been disclosed. And it, but it would seem strange that they would come in and start doing due diligence uh, without knowing everything that was publicly known about Barnes and Noble prior to that, and sort of going through their uh, an acquisition checklist to say, all right, well, from what we know before we even talk to Barnes and Noble, we need to make sure that all of these boxes are checked, and that uh, that we're comfortable that we know. Uh, exactly what the situation is, uh, you know, before we schedule a meeting. Yeah, it, and it seems like what they're one thing they might be trying to do is um, just say, "Oh, it wasn't anything they found in due diligence. It was something that the former president said." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that that have been that has been one of the one of the the contentions in uh, in Barnes and Noble's responses to their uh, to their former president was that basically he blew up the whole deal, but the details that that have been uh, included in their in their uh, filings are almost make it seem like uh, I mean nobody nobody who's an experienced business person would would say and do the kinds of things that their former president did uh it just it's just it's just weird behavior that doesn't fit with somebody who's who's uh, had high level corporate jobs before uh well thank you very much david for taking the time to do this this great interview we covered a lot of ground i really enjoyed the way you you laid the foundation for your own story so well at the beginning um, for anyone interested in following uh, publishing industry news uh, and specifically the Barnes & Noble uh, story, um, <laughs> I couldn't recommend a better place to follow it than the thepassivevoice.com uh, and David's writing. Thank you so much, Len. You're very kind uh, to say that, and I've really enjoyed our conversation as well. Thanks.